0: So this section is entitled, Abner Goes Over to David. During the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine, had had a concubine named Rizba, daughter of Aya. And ish said to Abner, Why did you sleep with my father's concubine?" Abner was very angry because of what ish had said, so he answered, Am I a dog's head on Judah's side? This very day I am loyal to the house of your father Saul and to his family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David, yet now you accuse me of an offence involving this woman. May God deal with me with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord had promised him on oath." and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul, and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. Ishbosheth did not dare to say another word to Abner, because he was afraid of him. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to say to David, "'Whose land is it? Make an agreement with me, and I will help you bring all Israel over to you.'" "'Good,' said David." I will make an agreement with you. But I demand one thing of you, do not come into my presence unless you bring Michael, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, demanding, Give me my wife, Michael, whom I betrothed to myself at the price of a hundred philistine foreskins. So Ishbosheth gave orders and had her taken away from her husband Paltiel, son of Her husband, however, went with her, weeping behind her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, Go back home. So he went back. Abner conferred to the elders of Israel and said, For some time you have wanted to make David your king. Now do it. For the Lord promised David, By my servant David I will rescue my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to the Benjaminites in person. Then he went to Hebron to tell David everything that Israel and the whole tribe of Benjamin wanted to do. When Abner, who had twenty men with him, came to David at Hebron, David prepared a feast for him and his men. Then Abner said to David, Let me go at once and assemble all Israel for my lord the king, so that they may make a covenant with you and that you may rule over all which your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Just then, David's men and Joab returned from a raid and brought with them a great deal of plunder. But Abner was no longer with David in Hebron, because David had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the soldiers with him arrived, he was told that Abner, son of Nair, had come to the king, and that the king had sent him away, and that he had gone in peace. So Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why do you let him go? Now he is gone. You know Abner, Sundaflare. He came to deceive you, and observe your movements, and find out everything you are doing. Joab then left David, and sent messengers after Abner. And they brought him back from the cistern at Sarah. David didn't know it. Now when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into an the chamber as if to speak with him privately, and there, to avenge the blood of his brother Asael, Joab stabbed him in the stomach, and he died. Later, when David heard about this, he said, "'I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord,' concerning the blood of Abner, son of Ner, May his blood fall on the head of Joab and on his whole family. May Joab's family never be without someone who has a running sore or leprosy, or who leans on the crutch, or who falls by the sword, or who lacks food. Joab and his brother Abishai murdered Abner, because he had killed their brother Asahel in the battle of Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and all the people with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and walk in mourning in front of Abner. King David himself walked behind the And They buried Abner in Hebron, and the king wept aloud at Abner's tomb, and all the people wept also. The king sang this lament for Abner, Should Abner have died as the lawless die? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. You fell as one falls before the wicked. And all the people wept over him again. Then they all came and urged David to eat something while it was still day. But David took an oath saying, May God deal with me be it ever so severely if I taste bread or anything else before the sun sets. All the people took note and were pleased. Indeed, everything the king did pleased them. And so on that day, all the people there, and all Israel, knew that the king had no part in the murder of Abner, son of Ner. Then the king said to his men, Do you not realize that a commander and a great man has fallen in Israel this day? And today, though I am anointed king, I am weak, and these sons of Zeruah are too strong for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil deeds. When Ishbosheth son of Saul heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage, and all Israel became alarmed. Now Saul's son had two men who were leaders of raiding bands. One was named Varna and the other Rechab. They were sons of Rimon the Beerothite from the tribe of Benjamin. Beeroth is considered part of Benjamin because of the people. Uh, Beeroth fled to Gitaim and have resided there as foreigners to this day. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when news came about Saul and Jonathan from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried, hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. Now Rechab and Bana, the sons of Rimmon the Beerothite, set out for the house of Ishbosheth, and they arrived there in the heat of the day while he was taking his noonday rest. They went into the inner part of the house as if to get some wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and his brother Bana slipped away. They had gone into the house while he was lying on the bed in his bedroom. After they stabbed and killed him, they cut off his head. Taking it with them, they travelled all night by the way of the Arabah. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who tried to kill you. This day the Lord has avenged my lord the king against Saul and his offspring. David answered Rechab and his brother Banner, the sons of Rimon, the Beirothite, As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, when someone told me Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed, should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you. So David gave an order to his men, and they killed them. They cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth, and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns, and the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel. You shall become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed King David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah for seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years.
1: Thank you, Syrah. That's a long reading. I really appreciate that.
0: Let's just um, pray
1: now um, for, for Jonathan as he comes up to preach. Lord God, I pray you will bless Jonathan as he comes to explore and explain your word. And Heavenly Father, I pray that you will speak through Jonathan to us now, and that we will have hearts and minds to listen, learn, and
0: respond. Amen.
1: Thank you, Darren, uh, and good morning, everybody. Uh, if you don't know who I am, I'm Jonathan. Uh, I'm one of the elders. Uh, and I'm my privilege this morning to preach uh, from these passages in 2 Samuel, uh, and thank you again to Silla for reading so nicely. It's a, it's quite something to read that amount of text and read it in a way which is so uh, engaging. So thank you for that. I was sitting down this week thinking about today and what to say and, and uh, a little bit of insight. What I do when I preach, I don't preach that often, as, as you know, uh, and I have a kind of template on Word, uh, which I just, whatever I've preached on last time, I kind of delete it all and then start again as I write down. Uh, and what was what I preached about last time was when we were in 1 Samuel, uh, many, many months ago now, uh, and it was about, I'm sure you remember every word, there will be a test, uh, do you remember? No, um, but it was about when Saul uh, was anointed king, so it's, it, was, it was the previous guy, it was Saul, uh, and we talked then about a series of randomly disconnected events which seemed like impossible to the, anybody sort of looking at it from... Uh, from the outside, but God was at work to try and bring about his purpose in so that Samuel uh, that so Saul became the king of israel and so it 's funny how these things work out just in your mind, because this week uh, today, the king that the God has chosen to succeed Saul is David, and as Darren said two weeks ago, we got halfway through the story uh, David is nearly there he's king of of one tribe of of Judah. Uh, but that hasn't been easy. There have been lots of twists and turns, and we're, we're st- we see more of those today. We left the story last time, if you remember, with the uh, Israelites engaged in civil war between uh, ish the son of Saul, the, the weak leader of Israel, a- and David, supported by uh, Joab uh, in, in Judah. And the battle... If you read uh, just at the start of the chapter, the battle rages long and hard for for many years. And it's in this week, we we see in these verses how finally David becomes king over all the tribes, uniting them under his rule. And, And if Saul's story that we talked about came about through a series of random events, then what we have in front of us is as David moves to being crowned king, it's a different struggle. It's a if you're like a hard-fought political journey to the crown, full of self-interest uh, and bad motives. But as, as we'll see as we go on, the, the, really, the reality is that God is at work, despite things looking bleak all the way through. I hope I've got some slides here. Yes, I've got one slide for you today, uh, which we'll go through. So that really what this is all about is God finally installing his king and there's a lot going on here and you will know you have realized that we've read two chapters of the narrative uh, and I guess if you've not been that studious this week and prepped and read uh through that then you it's probably the first time you've heard it so it's important before we get into thinking about um what it is that God is saying to us that we understand what the story is so really as we've talked about here we start with David and Ishbosheth at war, and we end up with David becoming the king over all of Israel. And we start at the start of this. In, we didn't read it, but at the start of chapter three, David is getting stronger. You can see it says there that he's getting stronger both in his um, militarily and in his family. He's he's um, got lots of wives, and he's adding more and more children to that to to. to uh, produce some sort of dynasty, and there's this man Abner as well. At the same point, that he too is getting stronger. The narrative starts with, uh, in chapter three, Abner switching sides. We met Abner last week. Abner is a uh, the kingmaker. He fancies himself as a bit of a kingmaker, and actually, he's been pretty successfully at it. What he's done is he's, he, he's installed Ishbosheth as, uh, as the king uh, of the northern kingdoms. And he is the power behind the throne, but now he sees I think the senses that Ishbosheth is a weak man, and hes he's on he's on manoeuvres, he's building his power base, perhaps he whom he himself fancies a pop at being king in the end. Well what happens is Ishbosheth has a rare moment of of confrontation and and he accuses Abner of sleeping with one of Abner's of Ishbosheth's father's concubines, one of Saul's concubines. And if he'd have done that, that would have been a a power play. It would have been um, Abner's staking claim, if you like, to the king's household. Ishbosheth sees that Abner has got his eye on the main prize, I think. And Abner, how to describe it really, He, 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 he flies off in a rage at the very mention of that. Whether he's guilty or not, it doesn't say doesn't say whether he did it or not in a sense that's not the point he's he's making a power place he's showing that he um you know that Ishbosheth can't challenge him in that way and so it's at that point that he makes a big scene about what he said uh, and he's angry at the poor cowardly king you can see that Ishbosheth is so weak that he just could do nothing uh, about what Avner has said See Abner decides that, that plan A is not working. Plan A was Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth is not going anywhere. he's back the wrong course, and now he sees that the future is david shaped. So he acts a plan and he reaches out to David, and you'll notice what he says in, in verse twelve. Um, he sent messages to David and he says, "Whose land is it? Make an agreement with me, and I will help you help bring." Help you bring all Israel over to you. He offers himself as a a kingmaker to David. He's saying, David, you know who really is pulling the strings here. It's not Ishbosheth. It's me. Let's talk. Let's do a deal. And David actually sees the wisdom in in working with Abner in this way. So he agrees, and we'll come back to this later. So Abner works to speak to the elders of Israel and to Benjamin to prepare the way, and he gets positive noises from them. And in the end he comes back to, to David who's in Hebron who, says, who sends him away in peace uh, as, uh, as partners to go and fix, if you like, the coronation. And he's an, intelligent, he's an interesting character, Abner, uh, if you have chance to read about him. He, he's, he's an interesting character, he's certainly brave, he's certainly clever, he's certainly politically and, and emotionally kind of intelligent. But there's no hint at all that he does anything other than self-serving motives. He only acts for himself. He just sees that David is the future and he dumps Ishbosheth and, and switches sides. There doesn't seem to be any kind of real theological reason for his actions. The only reason why he mentions God is because it suits him. He's motivated by the need to preserve his power and, and hopefully enlarge it with David. So that's the first bit, Abner switching sides. And the second part we look at is then we move back to this man, Joab. We've met him too in the last chapter and he's been out fighting for David and he comes back and he hears that his great enemy, Abner, uh, and if you remember back uh, to the two weeks ago, Abner is the one who killed his brother Asahel uh, in the last chapter. And so there's history there. And he realises that Abner has been not has been come to see David, and they've been talking. And not only that, as David's let him go and let him go in peace. You can perhaps understand Joab's reaction at this point. It's probably quite in, incredul- it has some incredulity that David is talking to this man, to his enemy. Perhaps it's mixed up with well, what is that, what are Abner's motives here? Why is he doing what he's doing? Why? Surely he's a rival to me, Joab, as 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 a general in David's army. What's Abner up to? It must be it must be no good. And then if you add in as well the fact that in the last chapter we read that Abner has killed his brother, and there is this need for revenge. He goes and he acts against David's decree that he should go in peace, and he goes and hauls Abner back and he kills him. He murders him. And that's a, a despicable act, something that he should not have done. It's Firstly, it was murder. It wasn't revenge. Abner, um, his brother was killed in battle. So Abner hadn't murdered his brother. He'd, they were in battle. He'd warned Asahel that he might do that. And in the end, he'd killed him. So there wasn't Abner was not guilty of murder. And anyway, he killed him in Hebron, which was a city of refuge, one where murderers could go to flee for refuge. But Joab doesn't see any of that. Joab is just driven by pure rage and this thirst for revenge. David again responds and makes it clear to the people that that he had no part in this. Down in um, uh, uh, verse 28. I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner, son of Ner. And then a bit later, He he obviously goes through uh, and makes a a really public display of of mourning for Abner. Why? Uh, Verse 36. All the people took note and were pleased indeed. Everything the king did pleased them. So on that day, all the people there and all Israel knew that the king had no part to play in the murder of Abner, son of Ner. He calls down a curse on Joab. He he deliberately says that I had nothing to do with it. And publicly, it's really clear that he had nothing to do with this despicable act. So that's the second thing. Joab murders Abner. And so you might think we're getting somewhere. We were getting somewhere. It looked like finally David was going, getting close to becoming king. And now, all of a sudden, it seems to have all gone wrong yet again. Because Abner is now dead. And Joab, this general, is is now uh, accursed. And so we come to chapter four. And if that wasn't enough, in chapter four, there's more dastardly deeds. There are these two mercenaries, Barna and Recab. And the text makes clear that they were nobodies. They weren't. They were sort of Israelites, but not really. Um, and all they did is they saw a the chance to make their name and become famous. They too saw that David was the future and they thought, we've got a plan, we've got a way in which we can try and uh, curry favour with David, try and do something amazing that will uh, please David and allow us to be part of his court. So what do they do? They cowardly, in, 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 in chapter four, they cowardly slip into uh, ish room while he sleeps they murder him and they cut off his head. we put it in a box, walk around for a night, and take it to David. Here, boss, I've got a present for you. Something that's going to make you really, really proud and really, really happy. Here it is. It's the other king's head in a box. And they expected that you can imagine as, as they go through this, expecting to sort of, you know, when do I get my gold medal? When do I get my, uh, you know, my rank in your army? Whatever it is, what they were looking for. And again, you see David's response is is, is very different. These guys don't remember very much their recent history. Because if you, again, if you were here about th- three or four weeks ago, when Matt took us through the first chapter of Samuel, you remember there was uh, the Amalekite who came to David and said, talked to him about Saul being killed and that he had had a had, a, had a, a a um a role in the death of Saul this this Amalekite and David had had um struck him down David knew that to kill the Lord's anointed was sinful it wasn't for human beings to decide uh on killing a king that the lord had anointed that was in only in chapter 1 and here we are in chapter 4 okay, it's many years later but these two characters Barna and Rechab they were guilty of exactly the same thing they thought they were going to go and get praise and glory for what they'd done but no David says um, uh, David says as surely as the Lord lives uh, in verse for chapter 4 verse 9 who has delivered me out of every trouble. When someone told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. That was was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed, should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? See, these guys deserve not praise, but punishment. They didn't know. Uh, well, perhaps they did know, perhaps they didn't care. But what they did was wrong. It was against God's law. And it was punished. So finally, very quickly, that's a, that's a, a, a real run-through, isn't it? And there's a lot of detail there that I just can't cover in the time that we have. So finally now, though, with ish gone... The pathway is clear and in chapter 5 the elders come to David in Hebron and he is finally after so much bloodshed, so many twists and turns, so much opposition he is anointed king over the whole kingdom. So you go, that's the the narrative, that's the structure of what we're looking at today. I guess the the key thing though is is kind of so what? It's an interesting narrative, it's an interesting slightly grisly narrative Uh, weird Old Testament story. It's all very well thinking about it in that way, but what lessons are they uh, for us today? Well, firstly, I want to think about what God is doing as we go through this. And the fact that God acts sovereignly in the face of opposition to David. It might seem that uh, all these things are, are thwarting God's purposes. But as we'll see, they really aren't. Let's think of the troublemakers again. Let's think of Abner and um, Joab and uh, these two characters, Barno and Rechab. They had bad motives. They were only out for themselves. Uh, they had no regard for God and his law and his purpose. But yet... They ultimately brought about the end of Ishbosheth's reign, which allowed God's promise to be fulfilled. Abner, he was just looking after number one. Joab was, was driven just by revenge, not by God's law. And those other two characters were just chancers looking for a uh, thought it was their chance, thought they would, um, you know, their eye on the main prize. Why does God allow things to happen in this way? Surely God can fulfil His promises without all this trouble. Why does He allow so much sin to get in the way? Why does He, he give so much space and 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 prominence to these dodgy characters? Has, has He failed in the way that He made David king in such a in what seems like such an underhand way? Ishbosheth's murder, for instance. It was this sin that was the final act that brought about, opened the door for David's reign. Why, why use such injustice in this like this? Well, a slightly flippant answer might be uh, that if God were waiting for the Israelites to be good before he acted, he would be waiting a long time. The reality of life is that humans are, are fallen creatures. We sin and people act in wicked ways all the time. I think we kid ourselves if we think that the people's motives are, are pure and if we look in the Bible only to read about heroes and, and you know heroic stories. it's History is much more nuanced than that. It's much more complicated That and it's amazing. It's really wonderful that the Bible doesn't airbrush out, if you like, the gnarly bits. At the moment, you know, there's a big push, isn't there, to say, particularly in things like Cambridge Colleges, to say if there is someone who is problematic, someone who owned slaves, someone who had uh, opinions that don't fit with our modern culture, that they are uh, cancelled, they're erased. Now, what would have been the case here if the Bible, whoever as, as it was written down, the Bible removed the dodgy characters? It wouldn't be true, would it? It wouldn't be history, it wouldn't be the way things operate it, the bible reveals history in all its fullness but it isn't to say that god ordains sin he doesn't he's not the author of sin he's not the one behind these sinful uh, acts he doesn't cause it to happen but it shows that in his sovereignty he allows circumstances to happen he gives people free will he gives people freedom to act But behind it, we can see that God is working his purposes out. And we mustn't think that the sin that we see in here from Abner, from Joab uh, and from those other two uh, is excused because it isn't. We shouldn't think that we can continue sinning so that grace might abound. It's clear in this story that there were consequences for all of these people. Yes, they had a part to play. But their wickedness was punished. Abner lived by the sword, and, and he died by it. Joab and, and his family were cursed. Actually, they got off pretty lightly, uh, really, for the murder that he committed. Uh, and Bana and Ricab, they met a very grisly end. None of their plans prospered. None of their none of what they did uh, prospered. They all ultimately failed but god worked things out anyway god worked things out even through those evil acts it's a bit of a it's a bit of a thing to get a head around isn't it god is not the author of sin but yet in his sovereignty he uses humans and all their sinfulness to bring about his will So then, what about us? What? So, again, so what? What about us? Perhaps we need to be careful. This is a classic story when we read these types of things and we think that we are David. That we are the hero. We're the ones who are sort of the, the bold king doing all of these wonderful things. But hold on. What? What? what first of all, what, what if we are an Abner or a Joab, at least sometimes, We might be tempted to think from this that actually we can manipulate things. We can uh, do people over to get what we want. And do you know what the the ends will justify the means? I seem to be getting away with it, perhaps, and and God doesn't seem to mind. Perhaps at work. Um, I I was thinking about this week that that, uh, our organisation, I work for an organisation called NHS England, uh, and it's been announced that NHS England will be 30% smaller uh, in 18 months' time. So we go through a big reorganisation. And immediately when you go through that sort of thing, you kind of think, right, I've got different ways in which I can act here. So I've got a responsibility for the people I manage, and I also am managed by other people. And it's it's quite an unsettling time. Uh, it's quite a difficult time you, how do I manage, how, how do I act? It's easy to think of being an Abner, of just being a bit sly, a bit tricky, just looking out for myself. Or a Joab who thinks, right, I'm going to sort of, you know, do over other people in order to get out of that what I want. We need to challenge ourselves that we are acting in a way which is right and not acting like a Joab whether that's at work it can even be in churches people can be ambitious can have power plays can seek their own advantage but we need to remember that God is not mocked uh, and sin does not prevail perhaps you're on the receiving end perhaps you're the one who has been uh, stitched up Perhaps you're the one who uh, is being hurt. Perhaps that might even be family or or friends that hurt you and act selfishly. Perhaps that hurt comes from an area that you never expected. Has something gone wrong? Well, yes, sin gets in the way of everything and it mars everything that, that, that we do. But also, no... God is building his church, his kingdom. He is working his purposes out in, in your life and in our lives as a church together. God uses people with, with motives, impure, um, even in really, really wicked ones. He uses them sometimes to work out his purposes. Supremely, of course, we see that, don't we, as, as Darren mentioned uh, earlier on, with Jesus, if you imagine him from uh, how much injustice, how much hate, how much wickedness and evil he endured from from uh, Pilate, from Judas, even the disciples were arguing amongst themselves where their position in the kingdom was going to be, and surely the ultimate betrayal, the ultimate wickedness, he's being put to death on the cross. That was a wicked, wicked act. But that was what God used to bring about his kingdom. He works, even though we make a mess. So that's the f- first one. And, and, and perhaps more briefly, but, so the first thing is, God is sovereign. God is working out his purposes, despite these wicked acts And the second thing, I want to just finish by coming back a bit to David. Because I haven't really mentioned him yet. I've mentioned the baddies, but I haven't mentioned the good guy. We've talked about God's sovereignty, but what does David do in the face of God's sovereignty? David realises and he's absolutely convinced that God has promised that he will be king over all Israel. How does David respond? Firstly, David is not passive. In the face of God's sovereignty, he doesn't just sit there in his king in his sort of palace or whatever and wait for like things to happen. He doesn't just sit there and think, right, God's sovereign, it'll work. it'll all work out in the end. He acts and he acts wisely and justly. David is upright. Going back to when Joab was 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 um, had murdered Abner, he his real desire was that the people should know and see that he is acting justly, that he wasn't compromised by what he did. He's also wise in the way that he deals with Abner and his uh, offer of a deal. It's very subtle in there. I haven't got time to go through it, but it, it's interesting how the the narrative switches from. Uh, Abner coming in saying, "Right, well, I'm, the, I'm the boss, I'm in charge. And it switches back to David being in charge very quickly. David is wise, upright, and, dare I say it, strategic in the way that he acts. He realises that God is working his purposes out, but it needs to be done in God's way, in God's time, but that God uses means, so that God will use David uh, to establish his kingdom, and it's important for us, I think just finally thinking about this, it's important for us, uh, as we think about that, that you know we believe and we love that God is sovereign. Well I do, you know, I glory in the fact that God is working his purposes out, and there is nothing that can thwart those purposes that God will bring about, regardless of human endeavour or not, his kingdom. And perhaps I come from a a church tradition that perhaps overemphasises that point. So uh, the idea is that God is sovereign, and actually all you've got to do is really sit back and leave him to act. And actually, if you act yourself too much, then that's a bit like works-based salvation. It's a little bit like somehow you're helping God out too much, and there's nothing that we can do to help God. that wasn't David's faith here he was absolutely convinced of the plan but he saw the need that for God honouring kingdom focused effort not bending the rules not being shy uh, sly or sharp if you think back those of you were in 1 Samuel the amount of times that he could have killed Saul and he didn't that he could have taken a shortcut for what God promised and he didn't but he wasn't passive either We believe that God will work in our midst, uh, in our lifetimes, in our personal lives as well. But as people, we need to be like David and, and use our gifts and our abilities in his service to be wise, to be active. There you are. David was a good king. He was a man after God's own heart. He acted righteously and wisely, but he too was flawed. Uh, We've glossed over it, the fact that he had many wives. That was as sinful uh, then as as it is today. David was not perfect. He was good. He's a good example, but he's not the perfect one. David is just a shadow of the one true king. Because ultimately, as as I'm sure you're aware, if we want to see someone who trusts the Father to bring about his will, acts justly and wisely all the time, and is busy about his Father's business, then we need, of course, don't we, to not look to David as good as he is and as wise as he is. We need to look to Jesus. He's not slightly wrong. He's not nearly there. He's perfect in all he did. Imagine and remember, he's... His wisdom in front of Pilate and, and in front of Sanhedrin when he was on trial uh, before they killed him, they had nothing on him. They couldn't pin a thing on him. He knew when to speak and, and when not to speak. And he is the one that is in control. That's the big arrow. God is the one that's in this story God is the one really working God is the one really acting and he is in control Uh, and he said he will build his church he says he loves every single one of his children and will guide them through till the end what a wonderful thing it is to be part of this great kingdom Amen